Would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Samuel chapter 4? I think one of the most interesting TV series that could ever be produced would be a series on everything that happened in the Bible. You have it all. You have murder, intrigue, you have conspiracy, evil, adultery, all kind of things. And most of all of that is seen in the story of David, the murder of Ishbosheth. The existence of mankind, the march of human history relentlessly moves toward the consummation of the age. It is never out of the control of Yahweh. He is superintending everything to infallibly and irrevocably bring us to the fulfillment of his purpose so that he will receive all of the glory. Uh, as a student of history, I see these many watershed moments. That may be a little loud, I don't know. Nobody's back there. There's. It's ringing just a little bit. You want me to answer it? <laughs> Old quartet joke. That's, that's, that's good right there. I can yell now and not scare myself. The kingdom of David, the covenant with David, the dynasty of David is key To the, to the final kingdom and the consummation. The Bible gives us four aspects of God's kingdom rule. First of all is the universal kingdom. Now that means that God is sovereign. He is the creator of everything and sovereign over all, including, including the smallest speck of dirt in the farthest planet at the edge of the solar system in an unknown constellation. He rules it. It's his. He knows how many specks of dirt there are on that planet and every other planet. The second aspect that we're taught in the Bible about God's kingdom rule is the mediatorial kingdom. Now, the mediatorial kingdom is where you and I live now. We are in the kingdom. As believers, as children of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are 
the people of God. It's an invisible kind of kingdom in the world right now, but it exists all across the globe and it's the mediatorial kingdom. We have Christ in our hearts. The third aspect is the messianic kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. The kingdom that begins to be displayed physically on planet earth for a thousand years Christ will reign there will be nations other nations Israel will be the most favored nation and there is a calendar that that's fairly meticulous in the scriptures that nations will follow so that on a, on a regular basis they come in honor of Christ who rules and reigns on the throne as son of David for that thousand years and he teaches after the thousand years, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he talks about how then the son will have delivered up the kingdom to the father. Now that is the eternal kingdom. That's the new heaven and the new earth. But revealed along the way is the truth that the Davidic covenant is key to the, the theology, the revelation, the manifestation of the kingdom of God. When we read and study, for example, 2 Samuel 4, and we'll be in the life of David for a while, God willing, we have to keep in mind that everything is under the control of God and that all of the other nations in the world, then and now, are only relevant to how God uses them with respect to Israel. The world presently seems to be going through a great shaking up. There seems to be a, a reorder of things. Things are, are being, the status quo is not status quo anymore, apparently, it seems. In, a, in, in, in the swiftest way that could be imagined, the basic fundamentals of, of, of life seem to be shaken and changed and we experience these things from nation to nation as we see how nations are being formed and shaken today we see them we see them culturally of course we see them spiritually the Bible speaks, the Lord Christ himself taught that there would be an end to the times of the Gentiles. 
Paul expands somewhat in the New Testament because Paul was appointed the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations other than Israel. So naturally, Paul would be inspired of God to address the times of the Gentiles. That's where you and I live, and it's even, it's even referred to, albeit in a vague manner, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of, of the kingdoms and then those toes that are mingled with iron and clay. That would be like the times of the Gentiles. And in the times of the Gentiles, the stone cut without hand comes and it grows into a mountain. It smashes the feet of this human civilization that in the book of Daniel is recorded for the purposes of God's relation to Israel in their time of captivity starts with the Babylonian empire. Now the revelation teaches us that there were two empires prior to that, but Daniel's prophecy deals with the beginning of things in the world, the, the Gentile powers and starting with Babylon and goes all the way through. Daniel, of course, makes reference to the kingdom. Ezekiel, of course, makes reference. I mean, I could be here for quite a while talking about the references in the Old Testament to the kingdom. We learned that there's a capital city, Jerusalem, which is seen in a heavenly sense as the new Jerusalem, established in glory, in a glorious way on the new earth. But the one, the, the biblical truth of the descendant of David in a physical sense, being the one on the throne, is never diminished. So when I look at things like the murder of Ishbosheth, now there were a lot of kingdoms that the history books would tell us played a greater role in world history at this point in time than did this event that was it was important to those of Israel, of course, but it just, it wasn't that big of an earth shaker, except for those of us who read the Bible and understand that God has declared that David will be the king of Israel. All of Israel, not just some of it. Now, when I, when I read history, I have to read history as a as a theologian, as a Bible student, as a Christian, I have to read history in light of God's dealing with Israel. I heard a, a preacher say, and I agree with him the other day, that too many, too many Christians are focusing their eyes on Washington, D.C. or other capitals of the world when we really need to be watching Israel and Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
because anything that's happening wherever, Washington, D.C. or whatever, is all relative in a way that we can't understand. It's too complex for us, but God is at work. And it is all relative to how God will finally bring the times of the Gentiles to an end. I'm not a numbers guy when it comes to when it comes to church. I'm like Spurgeon who said God will send those whom he will bless. And so I, I don't spend all of my time wringing my hands over the numbers from week to week, month to month, year to year. But I have noted something. There's a particular evangelist, he lives in Alabama, and he sends out a newsletter every week to every Alabama, I don't know if he goes across the convention or just to the Alabama pastors. I have been getting this weekly newsletter from him for years, decades, and he's still at it. Now, if you go back, let's say to the 80s, His calendar was full and the statement on the front of his the trifold of his newsletter was always a report on those who had been saved. Forty years ago, those numbers were in the thousands. I am a personal observer of this. When I say thousands, I don't mean tens of thousands, but I mean 1163 or 2004 or 1012, you know, it was just because he stayed booked all the time and across four meetings in a month, he, he would always register all of these people who came forward. Through the years, those numbers have diminished. They went from thousands to hundreds and from high hundreds to middle hundreds to low hundreds. And it went from hundreds to scores and from scores to dozens. The last newsletter I got, he made his report on the front, two people saved. Now think about that. Just a few scant years ago, maybe three or four, for the first time in its history, the Southern Baptist Convention went backwards, went, went downward. It has been going in a negative fashion in baptisms and in numbers ever since. It hasn't been reversed. Now, I think, and this is my belief, and it is his prerogative to do it. He is sovereign. Do you know nobody deserves to be saved? I'm often asked the question, what about those who have never heard? Well, I can't identify them. First of all, I don't know who they are. But I know this, 
that like me, they don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve heaven. It is only by the grace of God that he has intervened and saved some of us according to his purpose. And therein I am collapsed and on my face. But I take note of how the church in a, I won't say the church, I will say Christendom, across the board in the last, oh, maybe 20 years, 20, 30 years, is losing its steam. The, the unction to do things, the people who would come, because somewhere in the week they were convicted and they have come that they might know Christ. And you don't see that like that anymore. I can speak from experience because I preached my first sermon in 1976, 70, no, 70, wait a minute. You and I were already married, 1976, I guess. So the seven, and then I was a music guy before that, and Daddy's, you know, he would drag me to church all my life. I've seen it. I've seen. The times when you could uh, call for a revival and all of the denominations would come together to support the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. You don't have it anymore. Our Lord said that the times of the Gentiles would come to an end. It just seems to me that the door for Gentiles is closing. God can do that. He doesn't owe the Gentiles anything. He doesn't owe Israel anything other than what he has promised and he must perform. Well, if that's the case, then we are, we are, we are on the precipice in my view of the rapture of the church. The end of the times of the Gentiles. And the beginning of seven years that will be primarily focused on Israel. Though others will be saved in the tribulation. They're called tribulation saints. But they belong to the 70th Shabbat. They belong to the 70th seven year period of Israel that has not yet been fulfilled. According to Daniel's prophecy. Now those seven years are the seven years of tribulation. And it hasn't been that long ago. It was back. I think I started doing it when we were locked in at home. And started teaching the book of the Revelation. Preaching through Revelation. And from chapters 4 through 19. 4 through 18. It is the awful account of the tribulation. 
And it seems to me that we see precursor to those things happening today. And I'm not a crazy man. Well, I know that's debatable. But I think of myself as a reasonable man, and whatever I might think, I think it out first, and I research it, and I base it on reason, and especially something like this, I would base it on Scripture. And you begin to see things that you didn't think the world would ever experience until the tribulation, and I'm not saying we're in the tribulation because we're not, with the son of the evil Son of perdition hasn't been revealed yet, and the church is not here when he's revealed. So, and there are many other proofs of that. Having said that, Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, just the beginning of it, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. It's even at the door. When you begin to see these things. And then the, the seven years where in a, in a big way God turns back to Israel and the 144,000 from the 12 tribes are, are preaching the gospel all around the world. And then Zechariah talks about the, how, how the, the Jews in Jerusalem will en masse come to Christ being faced with, with eradication from the Antichrist and his forces. It's so plain. It's just right there. And when you consider all of these things and how those seven years will see probably the greatest outreach, the greatest harvest of souls ever known in any era of time. And those seven years are the labor pains. So that then finally, Israel is, is birthed, the, the birth comes. But our Lord talks about a time that is the beginning of birth pains. Before we had our first child, we both were unlearned <laughs> in what happens. We're at the house there watching some TV show or something, and along the night, Pat says, You know, my, my back feels kind of funny. We'll lay down. Kind of feels worse when I lay down. Well, let's just get up and watch something. Right? Then a little later, she says, well, that's, that's kind of a twinge there. I said, well, I've never been around a woman going in labor before. Are you going in labor? Well, I've got a bag packed. Might just be. So we debated with one another about whether or not to go to the hospital. I don't know, enough, doesn't feel so bad now. Oh, well, yeah, maybe. 
it was the beginning of birth pangs. <laughs> we, parked in a, we parked in a parking lot. The ER was half a mile away. And we had to climb a very steep hill. I said, well, this just looks like the best place to park. Let's just go up here. I didn't think about what I was doing to her. She said, okay. <laughs> and up that hill she went. Come on, come on. So we got into the ER double doors and nurse met us. And I said, I don't know, we might be in labor. Man, they started flying around and brought her a wheelchair. And I was watching them. I'd never seen her in a wheelchair. They put her in a wheelchair. And what, what did you do? Sure enough, that little, I had a twinge in my back. About 30 minutes into our ER arrival was uh, uh, rolling from one side to the other. I need a shot. All I could do was sit there. Just It wasn't. In a, the most aggravating thing of all was that they turned their TVs off at midnight at the hospital. <laughs> there was nothing to watch. <laughs> well, listen, the second, third, and fourth children, we, we didn't take any chances. We just... Uh, Raced right on to the hospital. All of that said, casually sitting around at home and something unusual sort of begins to happen. Well, that's the beginning of birth pangs. Maybe that's where we are right now. The world is in full labor in those seven years. So that the times of the Gentiles politically, economically, militarily, will all come to an absolute end and the king of kings at the end of those seven years comes in power and glory. But those seven years have to happen first. There again, God is, and there are people getting killed and, and there are people uh, on a wholesale le uh, scale on the, among the earth dwellers. They're just... Awful things are happening. Fire is coming and the, the water turns to blood and all the fish die and the sky darkens and all that. But these things are in the word of God and they have to happen. So the beginning of, of birth pangs, they ha that has to happen. To see the beginning of these things... That has to happen. That's, that's, that's it. And so as the people of God, in my view, we are very privileged to be experiencing the work of God in a time which might very well be the rapid close to the times of the Gentiles. Mr. Pinson used to work for us at the store. He was a retired account manager, uh, financial manager at the steel plant, and he was a good friend of Daddy's. When he retired, he became our, our office manager. And he said to me, when I was a young man, he always carried a 
handkerchief around it. When I was a young man, my feet would run and my nose would smell. Now I'm an old man and my feet smell and my nose runs. I am beginning to understand what he's talking about. Seems like the louder I get, the more I turn on that faucet. But anyway, when I think of the sweep of history, and I think of what just not so long ago was so stable, everything was so stable, and you think, the Lord said, I come quickly, in taxes, in in. In, uh, in rapidity, in taxes, which means my coming will involve that which will, when it starts happening, it will happen with a dizzying pace. Boom, 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 boom. This, 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 that, that, that. I would submit that it's a different world today than it was a year ago. Just some months ago. But I'm reminded that I cannot be afraid. I just repose in the arms of my Savior who has it all under control. Now that brings me back to 2 Samuel 4. A vital part of the plan of God was the Davidic covenant. The king of kings must without mistake be identifiable and then be identified. So here's the house of Saul, the house of David, the northern tribes following Ishbosheth. Judah, remnants of Levi, remnants of Benjamin, following David. God's purpose is for David to reign over all of Israel because the promise is that the son of David would be the ultimate king of kings and be seated on the throne. And according to David's writing himself, he said, my Lord, he speaks of his project, he says, my Lord. So he speaks of his descendant, who is his Lord. So how's it going to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit of God reveals to us, and it's not always a pretty story, but we belong to God. The psalmist says, my times are in your hands. We pray for good times. We pray for easy times. Sometimes it's hard times. But the promise is always there that his grace is sufficient for us. If I have added problems, I've been given added grace. To deal with the problems. Now, this is a, 
an ugly story. But it is a story that is vital to the outworking of the purpose of God. And at the root of it all is the grace of God. As horrible as it seems. Now, that was a long introduction and I know that. But it's only 12 verses. Ba'ana and Rechab. Instead of the instead of the division in the Hebrew, <laughs> if another word, if another letter had been substituted, and it would have been son of Anna, it would be banana. <laughs> but it's not. Ba'ana. It's the only way I can entertain myself when I'm studying. <laughs> Ba'ana and Rechab. Saul's son heard that Abner had died. Now, Abner was the one who was the force behind the throne of Ishbosheth. Had died in Hebron. That's where David is. And his hands became feeble, and all Israel were dismayed. His hands became, okay, what happens here? Without Abner, Ishbosheth doesn't know what he's doing. He's weak. He'll come to the microphone and say something that doesn't make any sense, and then he'll walk away. No, I'm, that's how you look at this, okay? Weak. So into that weakness comes this vacuum of leadership. And whenever that happens in a nation, something is going to happen. Somebody is going to take over. And Saul's son. Okay, so all of Israel were dismayed. Now here's what's happening. All of Israel, those northern tribes. Now here's David. He's getting stronger. His people are prosperous. His army's getting stronger. He's winning all the battles. During those years when Saul pursued David, the people could have lined up with David, but they didn't. They just stayed with Saul. And now they have... Buyer's remorse. Ishbosheth, he's the wrong guy. We lined up with the wrong person during all those years. Saul's son had two men, the heads of troops. The name of one was Ba'ana, and the name of the second was Rechab, the sons of Rimon the Be'eretite, of the sons of Benjamin, for Be'eret was also counted to Benjamin. Now, Be'eret. was a group of people in Joshua's time. He entered into a, an alliance, a, a, a treaty. And these people were spared. And uh, they were sent to live in Gibeon, which wasn't the best place in the world to live. But they were not Israelites. 
But they live, these sons, now, now these, of, uh, these of Benjamin, they are Israelites. For Be'erit was also counted to Benjamin. Now Be'erit was spared. Maybe you remember when we were in Joshua. Joshua spared them, but he said, you're going to have to be our slaves. They said, okay. So they were enslaved to Israel. These were the Be'eritites, but they aligned themselves with Benjamin and the Be'eritites fled to Gittaim and were living there until this day. So we're introduced to these two guys. Now their people had been enslaved and Saul, you may remember back in 1 Samuel in a, in a campaign could have and even sought in a way to destroy the Beeritites. But anyway, now put in the middle of this is, is just this brief account of Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. You remember Jonathan. Let's read the verse. Jonathan was the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse carried him and fled. And it was in her haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, so he was, he was, he was disabled for the rest of his life because of a severe accident. She figured that all the household of Saul would be slain. Saul having lost to the Philistines, and so she made her decision to flee with this child, Jonathan's son. And when whatever happened that he fell and messed up his legs, he became lame. I think maybe what the Holy Spirit is teaching us is the Ishbosheth was, he was weak. The only one left here is weak. And really, according to Hebrew tradition was, was really disqualified from, from being on the throne. But we have just this brief allusion because now that's going to be an important point a few chapters down the road. Now, we have an assassination. The sons of Rimon de Be'eretite, Rechab and Ba'ana, went and came in the heat of the day to the house of Eshbosheth when he was taking his midday rest. What a guy. Kingdom is falling apart. His general is dead. So he decides to take a nap. And they came inside the house as buyers of wheat, and they struck him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, escaped. I don't know how that's translated in your Bible. They struck him in the, under the fifth rib. But that's a, that's a detail in the Hebrew that is important. I think we've seen that before when... Uh, Maybe it was Abner who was struck under the fifth rib. The fifth rib, between the fifth and sixth ribs, under it is the largest chamber of the heart, the lower chamber of the heart. And so this is how soldiers were trained. You would, you would work for this, uh, for this strike with a sword under the fifth rib, that would, that would empty out your blood. You, you were dead if that happened. 
If you've ever watched boxing in Thai, I don't know if it's still a legal blow or not, but they used to be, have a heart punch, and it came up a little bit at an angle like this, and it was aimed at that very part of your... It would jolt the heart and sometimes cause the boxer to faint because his blood supply had been shaken for just a brief moment. Heart punch. So if you ever get in a fight, you need to remember that. They came as I struck him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, escaped. And they came into the house as he was lying on his bed. So this is a Hebraism. They tell you what happened, and then they give you some details. And he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him and put him to death, and they removed his head. And they took his head and went by way of the plain all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David to Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and Yahweh has granted my Lord the king vengeance this day of Saul and his seed. Now they were looking for a reward. They thought, Man, David is going to like this. <laughs> Show up with the guy's head. Killed him while he was asleep, cut his head off. And they, they wrongly attributed the heinous act to Yahweh. David is a man after God's own heart. If a nation needs anything from its leader, it is this. Blind justice. Justice comes down equally for whoever may be standing in its path. You can't favor justice one way or another. It wouldn't be justice then. It would be injustice. David is that kind of king. So then the king meets out his justice. David answered Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beheritite, and said to them, As Yahweh lives, whoever who delivered my person from every as Yahweh lives, who delivered my person from every distress, that he who told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and he was in his own eyes as a herald of good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag. And who had expected me to give him a reward for good tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain an innocent man in his own house on his bed. And now shall I not hold you accountable for his blood and remove you from the earth. David commanded the young men. They slew them, cut off their hands and feet. This was a, uh, this was a death of shame and humiliation. And hanged them up beside the pool in Hebron. But the head of Ishbosheth they took and buried in the grave of Abner in Hebron because Abner was a kinsman. And now the other tribes will see that David is a just man. David would profit from the death of Ishbosheth. But remember what he said, you know, he said, Yahweh has been with me, Yahweh takes care of me. I don't need a couple of thugs to claim to do Yahweh's work. But even in the dastardly deeds of these men, God works his purpose. 
We'll stop there and we'll see after this that all of Israel, according to the plan and purpose of God, as David was anointed to be so, all of Israel comes and makes David the king. One thing to note, he did not refer to Ishbosheth as the anointed king because no prophet ever anointed him. So he was an illegitimate king. All right, we'll stop there and have our uh, deacon prayer time.